This is State of Water. State of Water. State of Water coming at you right now. State of Water, a podcast focusing on clean water issues and their relationship to policy, equity, community, and climate. Featuring captivating interviews with Michiganders from many walks of life, State of Water is the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan, a program of the nonprofit organization Title Track. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for lending your ears. We're grateful to have you on board. If you previously subscribed to the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign during the run-up to last year's midterm elections, you'll notice that things are a little different. Starting here with Episode 8, we've rebranded the program. We've got a new name that's easier to find, new narrator voices in the mix, some key improvements made to our production gear, and a new logo designed by our dear friend Brad Kick at Crosshatch Center for Art and Ecology. With these changes, we hope to broaden our reach, deliver better quality content for you, our listeners, and become your go-to source for perspectives on these vital issues. There has never been a more crucial moment to stay informed on clean water issues than right now. We're thankful that you're here with us, and we hope the work that we do can inform and inspire the work that you're doing out in the world. State of Water is made possible through a generous contribution from the Esperance Foundation. On this episode, we feature part one of our in-depth interview with Youssef Rabhi. Since 2017, Youssef Rabhi has represented Michigan's 53rd House District, encompassing the majority of Ann Arbor, and he is currently serving as the Democratic floor leader in the Michigan House of Representatives. In this interview, he discusses his unique background, the path that led him from activism to politics, and the work he's engaged in for social and economic justice. Here to introduce Representative Rob He and lead the conversation is the founder of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan, Title Track Executive Director Seth Bernard. All right, I'm here with you, Seth Rob He in Ann Arbor, Michigan, your hometown, at the original location of Rue's Roast, some of the best coffee you can find. Thanks so much for your time, Yusef. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. So you represent uh, Michigan's 53rd House District in Lansing. Yep, absolutely. And that includes most of the city of Ann Arbor here um, in, in Washtenaw County. So, And you are now the Democratic floor leader. That's right. Yep. Awesome. Um, so let's start early. Um, I read that you, in preschool, um, started to foster a connection with um, the natural world and with water through this Adopt a Stream project. And uh, with yeah. Title Track, we work a lot in um, fostering relationships with young people in the natural world. So can you just talk a little bit about the impact that that had on you and what the program was like and your memories of it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for asking that question. So um, when I was in uh, preschool, 
you know, my preschool was uh, had adopted a, a creek, part of Mallet's Creek in, in Ann Arbor, and it was part of the Adopt-A-Stream program, which is a part of the Huron River Watershed Council. Uh, and I remember distinctly as a kid, you know, going down on uh, those days to the creek and, uh, you know, doing everything from studying the, like, sedimentation uh, of the creek to, you know, looking at the little, uh, you know, crayfish and, uh, you know, caddisfly larvae and stuff like that. And then, uh, you know, going in and actually doing some trash removal, picking up, uh, you know, plastic bags and shopping carts and other things that, you know, had found their way into the creek and doing that, uh, you know, that cleaning activity. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and then building off of that, we, you know, we would go out every day, right? Every day we would go out, whether it was to the creek or whether it was into the park behind the preschool. Uh, but on rainy days, we'd put on our rain boots and we would go out into the street and we would look at where the rain was, uh, where the rain was, water was flowing and going into the storm drains. And then we would watch it. We would follow the storm drains all the way to the creek and see where the water came out the other end. And we would notice, you know, the oil sheens in the water. And we would notice the pollutants that were going into the creek. And we started to learn about how it wasn't just, you know, the trash bags and shopping carts, but there was all this other pollution as well that was going into our creek. Um, And so pretty quickly, we started to realize that, like, the things that we did in our own driveways, in our own um, in our own front and backyards uh, would then impact the 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 water quality of this of this creek that we had adopted. And so we uh, started this uh, basically door to door program where we would go in the neighborhood canvassing the neighbors and asking them to consider not using herbicides and pesticides on their lawns because it would ultimately impact the quality and the health of our stream Uh, and so that was really my first experience going door to door talking to people in the community and that that experience uh, as a kid really got me from an early age thinking about not just how you know the impact on the environment uh starts in your own backyard but also thinking about uh what stewardship means, not just in an environmental sense, but in the, in the sense of like a community. How do you uh, steward a community? How do you build a community? Um, and that was a really important part of uh, my formation, I think, into my now uh, into my pol- political career as well. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. And so you started pretty early with your political career. Um, I, I want to go into what you studied in college first, though. So you went to U of M here. And uh, again, there's an interesting connection, title track in our mission statement. uh, We talk about engaging creative practice to build resilient social ecological systems. And within resilience thinking, uh, which I learned about from my mentor, Bob Russell, who's a co-founder of the Neotawana Research and Education Center. um, It's the acknowledgement of social systems and ecological systems being connected. So social ecological systems are what we have in this world that we live in now in the 21st century. It's almost impossible to separate an ecosystem and a social system. And um, you got a degree in environmental science with a specialization in urban planning and ecosystems management. Can you talk about uh, what that was like and why you chose that path? No, absolutely. And and so, and actually just continuing on with the story I was just telling. So ultimately, uh, and this ties into answering your question as well, but Ultimately, uh, what we decided to do is after I'd graduated preschool and gone into, you know, first and second and third grade, uh, the the preschool classes that came after me decided that, uh, you know, instead of watching the stormwater go into the storm drain and then ultimately to the creek, that we should find ways to basically... Uh, store the stormwater before it goes uh, to the creek. And we started to learn about, uh, you know, how native ecosystems existed before, you know, uh, settlement and before, uh, you know, people 
made just big swaths of grass, basically, to, you know, hundreds of acres of just mowed grass. Um, that doesn't really help to retain the water. That just is almost, it's not impervious, but it's, it's you know, just one step better than impervious. Uh, and so we started to, uh, we started a program called the Burr Park Children's Wet Meadow Project, where we actually built a wet meadow. We um, grew native plants uh, and, you know, uh, grew them in a greenhouse and then, you know, dug out uh, a, a large uh, uh, bowl, basically, in Burr Park and planted all of these beautiful native plant species uh, mm -hmm. with the goal that when it rains, uh, you know, the water would stay there, would go down into these deep, deep roots that are many, many, many times deeper than that of just normal turf grass. And it would retain the water, it would keep it there, it would help to, um, you know, make our creek then uh, the water uh, better quality because you don't have the herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers and, uh, you know, oil from cars and stuff going directly into the creek. It's all staying there, it's getting filtered, it's getting processed by these plants. And so we started with that first wet meadow and the project is ongoing. Uh, it started in the mid-90s and is, is ongoing now. We uh, built a second wet meadow, we built a third wet meadow, we built an extension on the first wet meadow, we built a Berman Swale project. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we just kept going and engaging youth in this uh, process of with the ultimate goal of making Burr Park on the south side of Ann Arbor basically zero uh, runoff. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I came to college, what I really wanted to focus on was uh, building off of that experience mm -hmm. of how do we create resilient communities in the context of using um, indigenous native ecosystems uh, that uh, can help to alleviate some of the issues that come with, you know, uh, 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 densely populated urban areas, such as, uh, you know, air quality issues, such as runoff issues, such as, um, you know, the heat island effect where you have, you know, the asphalt in the buildings that are soaking in all this heat and making it feel hotter in the cities, thus, you know, increasing the need for air conditioning. Mm -hmm. But if we can incorporate native ecosystems, healthy native ecosystems into that context, then we can actually help to alleviate some of those, uh, some of those, some of those problems. And so that's what I was really passionate about. And that was sort of the intersectionality of talking about urban planning and talking about, you know, the, the environment and talking about, uh, you know, social equity and how, uh, how putting, you know, those ecosystems in would impact the, the equity issues within those urban communities as well. So that's what I became really passionate about. And that's what I stu ultimately studied and graduated with a degree in uh, from U of M. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's such a win-win, you know, we've, we've called them rain gardens a lot, working on those native gardens that filter water it's yeah. a community beautification process. It, it helps kids sort of take a sense of responsibility for their place. And, um, and it's also great for pollinators too, which is tremendous right for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so great. So you, um, you also, while you were still in college, ran to be a Washtenaw County Commissioner. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, your process that led to yeah. that decision and how it went for you jumping into politics? Yeah, so I, I kind of came to politics first as an activist. Um, mm -hmm. So while I was in college, you know, I was still very involved with, you know, the Wet Meadow Project and stuff like that. But I was also involved in a number of other environmental organization uh, organizations pushing against mountaintop removal in, uh, you know, in, in, you know, West Virginia. And, uh, and then building off of that, also getting involved in 
anti-war activism uh, that was around the time of the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and I got really engaged in the anti-war movement organizing protests in Ann Arbor uh, and buses to DC for large protests there uh, I ultimately joined the board of a local nonprofit which was uh, called Michigan Peaceworks at the time mm-hmm. it has since uh, folded but um, they were a great organization that worked on uh, you know uh, anti-militarization work and so forth in the community and uh, and, and in addition to those uh, two, I also uh, was involved with the labor movement, uh, helping to support uh, uh, and be and participating in a group called Students Organized for Labor and Economic Equality, which uh, one of our first campaigns was anti-sweatshop uh, against the University of Michigan's apparel uh, uh, being produced in sweatshops. Mm-hmm. And that uh, campaign culminated in a sit-in in the president's office, President Coleman of the University of Michigan president, uh, her office, we occupied her office and were ultimately arrested, 12 of us were arrested uh, in, in, her, uh, in, her, in her building. And uh, that was definitely an experience that propelled me into uh, being engaged and active uh, 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 beyond uh, just you know some of those uh, some of those uh, you know labor issues and environmental issues and anti-war issues, I started to see some of the dynamics in my own community of you know how uh, you know social inequity was working and how you know uh, redlining and racial discrimination impacted our uh, you know our state uh, and how some kids are able to go to better schools than others and you know so much of the inequities that exist right my own backyard. So I started to really uh, focus in and roll up my sleeves to be uh, committed to helping to make this community, uh, this part of the country, uh, better. Uh, you know, because some, so many times we get focused on things that are happening all across the planet, uh, and yet here we have in our own backyard some very important issues. And on the positive side, you know, if we can, if we can try to uh, make that positive change right here in our own backyard, mm-hmm. then it can become a model for other places to use as well. Uh, and so I really got excited about that idea. And in uh, 2010, uh, as I was finishing my last um, year at, in college, a seat opened up on the Washtenaw County Board of Commissioners. And I put my hat in the ring, not thinking that I was going to win. Mm-hmm. I had never really planned on running for office. It wasn't in my um, you know, career planning or anything like that. Uh, I just wanted to run because, you know, as an activist, I had, had strong feelings about all of these issues and wanted to, uh, you know, to, to put those issues uh, forward uh, and, and try to elevate them in the, in the dialogues and conversations at the doors, at the debates and so forth. And so, so I ran, um, you know, a campaign that focused a lot on that public outreach and on, you know, knocking those doors and talking to those, uh, you know, folks in the community. And, you know, it was at the time I was working at the Arboretum uh, doing field work, um, doing a lot of native uh, uh, plant uh, ecosystem restoration, native plant uh, planting and, you know, so forth and parks maintenance work. And so every day after work, I would run home, take a shower uh, and then, you know, put on some, you know, nicer pants and a button up shirt and go out and just knock doors and talk to people every day after work, every day throughout the whole summer. And uh, when the other thing that I tried to do is really focus uh, 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 on reaching out to communities that had traditionally not been reached out to uh, mm-hmm. within my district, particularly the student population, uh, because students are uh, you know only here for four years usually, and because the elections are in uh, the primary elections are in August, uh, you know a lot of students aren't around for that, and so a lot of people advised me to just like say, oh hey, forget about the students; they're not around; they don't vote; don't worry about them. But I spent a lot of time actually in the student neighborhoods canvassing, talking to people who uh, were 
voters and who were very, uh, you know, passionate about various issues that we were facing as a community. Um, and so election day came around uh, in, in early August 2010, and I ultimately, uh, on, on that election night, uh, won the election by a single vote. So one vote put me over the top, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and that was it. Um, and not thinking that I was, you know, starting off not thinking that I was going to win an election and then ultimately winning it by one vote, uh, which ended up being two votes after the recount. There was about a month later, there was a recount. And they found another vote for me during that process. And so hmm. ultimately, I ended up winning that election by two votes. Um, but that was my very first election. Uh, I, was, I was 21 when I filed, 22 by the time I was sworn in uh, to my first term as a county commissioner in 2011. That's fantastic. Wow. And you won it by two votes. Two votes. Yeah. And, and honestly, like that, that experience to me is something that... Um, I will always look back to because part of why I wanted to run for office too was, you know, I'm a I'm a firm believer in in our democratic values uh, as as a as a nation, right? We I believe in democracy. I believe in the power of the citizens and the people to stand up and to you know demand uh, for their rights to be heard. And so uh, when it came down to it, and I won that election by a single vote, that's I don't think I would have asked for any other uh, way for that to have gone down because uh, I will always be able to, no matter where I go in politics, look back at that moment in time uh, and remember that every single voter matters, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know who that one person is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's at once uh, a mystery person and it's everybody that voted in the election. Right. And it's sort of this beautiful moment of, of, you know, reflecting on the power of each individual in a democracy to have their voice make a difference. And so to me, Again, wherever I go in, in politics, I will always remember that every person matters mm. um, to the, you know, not just to elections, but matters as, as members of our democracy. Absolutely. That's really powerful, powerful symbolism, and it's affected the course of your life dramatically. So you jumped from county commissioner to candidate for state rep. Uh, can you just talk briefly about that process? Um, I, I see you as kind of a new paradigm kind of politician. We're seeing this trend, which is exciting, of people who come from activism. They come from the grassroots, frontline social justice and environmental causes and enter politics motivated to make a bigger change. Um, and so as a very young person, you're a county commissioner. You, you served for six years? Is six that years, yeah. I served for two years as chair of the board, mm -hmm. uh, six years total as a county commissioner, and then filed in 2015 to run for state representative. And your platform, a healthier environment, a resilient economy, a strong public education system, and equity for all. Right. I called them my four E's, equity, education, environment, and the economy, an economy that works for all. So. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, you know, you came on my radar and, and then uh, the first time we crossed paths, I believe, was at the Water is Life Festival and the Pipe Out Paddle protest. Yep. And that was at the end of last summer at mm -hmm. the Straits of Mackinac, an event that Janan Cornstock has put on. Yep. Um, and that's the site where the very first protest of Line 5 happened. Uh, with Bill McKibben showing up. Mm -hmm. And this was in the aftermath of the uh, the Enbridge oil spill in, in the Kalamazoo right. River. Um, so obviously Line 5 has become a major, major issue. Um, not long after you got in and, and 
you uh, had a very strong campaign, lots of support. It seemed like a lot of people in the Ann Arbor area got behind you, mm-hmm. um, former politicians and leaders, uh, Congress people. Um, so you were you were immediately jumping into that line five issue. Why is that important to you? Well, we only have one planet, and we only have uh, you know we we are the Great Lakes state. Michigan is the Great Lakes state. That is part of. Our heritage, it's part of my heritage, is part of who I am. It's literally in my blood, uh, is the Great Lakes. And so when there is a existential threat to that, uh, to our way of life, to our, uh, to literally our blood, that's something that I take very seriously. And I will not uh, ever back down from the fight to make sure that we have clean Great Lakes for future generations. I mean, I remember as a child going to the shores of the Great Lakes and uh, I remember the, the, the sensation of, you know, the water, uh, you know, touching my feet and touching my ankles. And I remember, you know, what it's like to have that experience as a kid. And I want, uh, you know, future generations of children to have that experience as well. Uh, and to me, you know, the importance of this was compounded when I was in California. Uh, before I became a state representative, I was in California for a, um, a conference um, and uh, in, in the town that I was in, there was a lot of oil, offshore oil rigs. Um, and I went down to the beach one day, uh, you know, on the Pacific coast. And, you know, I, I looked down on the sand and I, and I noticed, like, there was a bunch of little black pebbles on the sand. And I was like, what is this? So I bent down to pick one up. It was an, it was an oil, um, you know, it was a little piece. It was, it was a chunk of oil, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I picked it up and squished it between my hands. And it was, it was you know... Got, I couldn't get it off my hand, right, because I didn't have any soap. It just, mm-hmm. you know, it got on my swimsuit. Um, it, was, uh, it, it, was, it was devastating to think about what had happened there, especially when I looked around and I saw these big mounds of basically tar that had, you know, logs and benches and sand all captured in it. It looked like they just bulldozed the beach. Like, I could have imagined you know, just coming there maybe a few months earlier and seeing, uh, you know, just the whole beach covered in, in black oil. And then it looked like they just bulldozed everything into these big mounds. Um, and I went to look it up and it turns out there was one of the rigs had burst and there was an oil spill and it had messed up the whole beach. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, standing on that beach and thinking about that and what had happened, uh, sort of gave me a visual of what we can expect in Michigan when line five breaks. And I, don't want that to ever happen to my state. I don't want it to happen to the Great Lakes. I don't want it to happen um, for future gener- for the sake of future generations. We can't afford it. And so there's been a lot of traction. Uh, it's been a, an arduous battle. Seven years, uh, citizen-led efforts have grown into organizations like the Great Lakes Business Network, business leaders organizing around Line 5, uh, calling for the shutdown. Um, there's just so many arguments that have come up um, on behalf of decommissioning Line 5. There's obviously the threat to the water, there's threat to the climate, there's threat to the economy. Um, Some of the opposition has been saying that um, we're counting on Line 5 for our energy needs, and you've been a big part of efforts to highlight the feasibility of other energy sources for the UP, and you've encouraged Dana Nessel and Gretchen Whitmer to follow through on their promises to shut down Line 5. Big news last week with Dana Nessel. Yes. And so can you talk a little bit about um, 
the feasibility of the UP's propane being covered. There was a report from the NWF recently, independently contracted, and how you're leveraging your position um, to to urge Governor Whitmer to do the right thing as well as your colleagues in Congress. Yeah, so, you know, I, I want to start first by thanking Dana Nessel for mm-hmm. taking this bold and decisive action uh, and following through on a campaign promise. I mean, one of the things I so appreciate about Dana is she's not the kind of politician that just goes and says stuff on the campaign trail and doesn't follow through on it. Uh, Dana is following through on her campaign promises, and I uh, can't say how refreshing that is uh, and how appreciative I am of her for actually stepping forward and doing what, what she said she would do. Uh, and uh, so, so that's, that's great that she has done that. And, and what, I, what I usually talk about when I talk about Line 5 and talk about shutting down Line 5 is I, I do think it's important to acknowledge you know, where the, the opponents of removing Line 5 are coming from. Uh, you know, because they're, they're not just talking about the energy needs of the UP. They also often talk about the jobs that are associated with the pipeline uh, and the need to, you know, make sure that we, you know, that, that those jobs are being, you know, th- that we're taking those jobs into account. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I talk about Line 5, uh, I make sure to underscore the fact that there is there are solutions that take care of the energy needs of the UP that ensure that we have good paying union jobs in northern Michigan and that protect our Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the, you know, I mean, almost 50 years ago, we sent someone to the moon, right? We, we sent a, a spaceship out in space and set foot on the moon 50 years ago. We can solve this problem. This is not rocket science. This is a solvable, you know, this is a solvable issue. We have an upper peninsula where the population there is uh, is is fiercely independent. I've been to the UP multiple times uh, since I got elected and visited and talked with the people up there. They're they're a, a very independent people. Uh, why should they have to rely on us trolls in Lower Michigan for their energy needs? What if something were to happen next winter and Line Five were to break and suddenly that supply of heating fuel for them is cut off? Why are we not thinking about resiliency for them today? so that we can avert a crisis in the future. Uh, we should be thinking about energy independence for the UP. We should be thinking about making, uh, making a path forward for the UP to have clean, renewable, uh, alternative energy options to make sure that their homes are heated and to make sure that their, their future energy needs are, are, are taken care of. And when we think about that, when we think about the solar and wind and geothermal capacity that we would have to build, we are, we are uh, uh, thinking about all of the jobs that will come with that. And those are jobs that I think we need to, we need to guarantee at some point are going to be union labor jobs mm-hmm. uh, so that we can tra- do that transition in a way that ensures an energy future for the UP that is independent from the Lower Peninsula, that makes sure, that guarantees that we are replacing those jobs with good-paying union jobs, and that also is protecting our Great Lakes. So there, we have the technology, we have the capability, we, we even have the dollars to do these kinds of things. It's just about the will to prioritize putting those dollars towards this type of endeavor. It's just about uh, the political will at this point to get it done. So, so there are options, and, and I think it's important that we not brush under the rug the concern about the jobs, the concern about the heating in the UP. We need to confront those challenges head on, and whatever solution we talk about, we need to be talking about all three of those issues, protecting the Great Lakes, ensuring the energy independence of the UP, and protecting good-paying jobs. We need to talk about all three of those in tandem.
Mm, absolutely. So you really touched on my next question, which is, um, and I'll preface it just by saying as well, um, you know, re you've really caught our attention with a lot of the the policies that you've proposed and the amendments that you've proposed um, in terms of water policy and in, in terms of center centering equity, addressing environmental justice, um, the amendment that you proposed to to allocate uh, $8 million to, to Flint to um, reinstitute their, their bottled water when it was cut off. Um, that also included asking Nestle to, to pay their fair share where they're paying $200 a year to extract hundreds of millions of gallons of, you know, public water um, at billions in profit while Flint doesn't have clean water. Um, and I mean, I could go on and I'd love for you to touch on some of your efforts, but there's also been opposition. There's been resistance. And, um, and even with renewables presenting incredible local investment, they're cheaper, they're, they're feasible, they're efficient. Um, we've seen counties in Michigan that have invested in wind thriving. You know, they're able to fix their roads. They're able to invest in their schools. They're creating jobs. Uh, we've had you know, veterans really advocating for investment in renewable energy to prevent foreign wars. Um, so where does this opposition come from? Where does opposition to some of the efforts for clean water and clean energy that you and others have put forward come from? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question. Um, I think it comes from multiple, you know, sources, of course. I think some of it is, uh, is based on fear, uh, fear that's oftentimes... Uh, being stoked by people who stand to profit. And I think that's the other motive is the profit motive. Uh, and I'll really focus on the profit motive, I think, because, you know, what I've seen is, uh, is it's really companies whose bottom line is being threatened by the conversion to alternative energy mm -hmm. that, that are the ones that are most opposed to what I'm proposing. Uh, and it's unfortunate because, uh, you know, we have a system that ideally uh, works, you know, for the benefit of all people. Um, but unfortunately, what we're seeing time and time again is the impact that money has on the political process. Mm -hmm. And when um, dollars are flowing into uh, the political process, which are intended to silence legislators or to push them into another camp, uh, you know, we see the results of that in, uh, in the resistance sometimes that we see to these important pieces of legislation that we're putting forward. And one just quick example that I'll give is I introduced a bill last session to require that our utilities move to 100% renewable energy by the year 2050. Again, we have the technology to do that. We have, uh, it's cheaper than putting new fossil fuel technology online. And yet there is this massive resistance because, uh, because it is an investment that the utilities would have to make. And ultimately, um, you know, they don't want to make that investment at the end of the day uh, because it may impact their bottom line. I don't think it will impact their bottom line that much, but uh, they believe that it would. So there is resistance. The utilities put an incredible amount of energy or resources and energy into the political process, into lobbying, into dollars going to candidates. And so, you know, when I'm shopping my bill around and trying to get co-sponsors on it, some people are hesitant because they don't want to make the utilities mad. If they make the utilities mad, 
they're afraid that they'll uh, cut them off from you know donations and campaign contributions and so forth so um so that's real uh, mm-hmm. that that resistance is real um and then there are some uh things that we've proposed too that are really meant to uh, uh push for uh more energy independence for individual michiganders to be able to install their own solar panels and their own solar and uh and alternative energy systems in their own on their own properties uh and again that has been met with a significant amount of resistance from the utilities the one bill that we haven't gotten as much resistance on that actually is moving through the process and we're really excited to see it move is uh is a bill that i i introduced it's a bipartisan piece of legislation uh with a republican representative and a republican senator uh is actually a bill to uh clarify that when someone puts a solar panel on their house, it should not increase the value of their property for the purposes of taxation. So putting a solar panel on your house shouldn't increase your property taxes is essentially what the bill says. Uh, And that bill recently passed the House uh, with only two no votes, uh, uh, two no votes, one absent, and 107 yes votes. Mm -hmm. So it's bipartisan, right? Because from my perspective, obviously, it's encouraging the uh, expansion of alternative energy options. It's increasing, uh, you know, freedom and opportunity for individual Michiganders to put those panels on their houses. And from the Republican perspective, it creates that, um, you know, tax cut. Right? They're they're always looking for ways to, you know, to cut taxes. And so, th- here's a bipartisan opportunity for us all to work together and say, look, this it shouldn't be taxed anyways. Right. Mm -hmm. And here's an opportunity for those ideals to come together uh, and push forward with something that we can all agree on. Um, And it's, you know, and there are so many burdens right now in place for people who want to put solar on their homes. Removing one of those barriers, I think, is is going to make a big impact. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you for that. State of Water is powered by the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign represents an opportunity to help place clean water issues front and center by partnering with environmental organizations across the state, by educating voters, and by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, this campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life, who share a similar priority, protection of our water. Both State of Water and the Clean Water Campaign are programs of the Michigan-based nonprofit Title Track. Their mission, engaging creative practice to build resilient social ecological systems that support clean water, racial equity, and youth empowerment. Tune in to our next episode, which drops next week, to hear part two of our interview with Representative Youssef Rabhi. When we return, Seth and Youssef discuss social and environmental justice, prioritizing public water over private corporations, and how to achieve bipartisan action in Lansing. We'll see you then. If what you've heard in this episode resonates with you, take the first step to getting involved. Go to titletrackmichigan.org and click contact to sign up for our mailing list. Don't miss an episode. Tune in next time.